Hello, my name is Jacob, and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Folk Podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest. It's someone that, I, I don't know, he's like this elusive mountain man that appeared on the YouTube front about a year ago and then disappeared mysteriously as he arrived and was dropping wisdom left and right. And then, then I was upset when he left and now he's getting back into the scene and he wants to be on the podcast. So I have Matthew from AWAS Initiations. Matthew, introduce yourself. Tell everyone about this mysterious mountain man. <laughs> All right, I'll do what I can, uh, as brief as I can. Uh, Matthew Sargent live in the uh, Sapphire Mountains of the Bitterroot Valley in Montana. Um, as Jacob mentioned, I uh, was producing the Iowa's Initiations YouTube channel. We'll be getting back into that probably uh, before this episode airs. Um, had to take a break because I had family matters I needed to take care of and all you heathens out there will understand that kin should be the most important thing in your life. So Hopefully you can forgive me for my absence, but uh, been a practicing heathen since uh, about 2000. And let's see, about nine years ago when I moved from Colorado to Kentucky, uh, nearby where Jacob is, uh, I started farming in homesteading. And as I really got into the soil, um, I just found the connection to the gods and the ancestors to be like, you didn't even have to think about it. You know, you'd hear whispers from Frere or an ancestor. And I found that to be, that stewarding the land to be a uh, great um, cultivator for the heathen path, if that makes any sense. No, no, you're good. We're just, we're just, uh, we're enraptured, man. Um, so is there any, is there any yeah. primary focus as far as like the deities you work with or, you know, especially with working with the land, you mentioned Frere, is that something you kind of go to? I mean, you're the first person I think we've had on the show that actually cultivates their own land. So this is yeah. definitely an interesting conversation. So as far as deities, I probably work with uh, Frere, um, Freya and uh, Thor the most, um, but a lot of the work in uh, whisperings I do in here are actually with, uh, you know, land whites, the land vateer. Um, spirits of the place. Um, where I live is actually kind of a rugged uh, mountain in Montana. So there's actually a lot of Scotty energy up there as well. Um, especially this time of year when, you know, there's snow on the ground making life fun and challenging. Um, it, I'd say I have kind of a balancing, you know, um, in my personal work that I do, I do a lot of work with Odin, but um, in the greater realm, a lot of the well, you know, I know you've talked about oaths before on your channel. Um, the only like true oath I have to any of the deities would be um, with Frere. So yeah, he's probably the go-to man as far as the, the gods are concerned for me. Parker probably hates himself for not being, have you actually talked to Parker on like Instagram or anything like that? Like son of the Vanir? A like, little bit. A yeah, little okay. Bit. I was about to say, because he mentions you all the time. He's like, I want that yeah. man's life so much. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously- yeah, um, we've talked a little bit. We should probably talk more. Um, I love my life. I am going to say that I have made a lot of sacrifices to live the life that I live. Um, there are a lot of days that I hate it because um, being about an hour from town, six miles of a pretty rough dirt road to get home um, when I go home um, can make things challenging. You know, even something as simple as building a chicken coop can be a nightmare if you realize that you're, you know, one, two by four short or whatnot, and then you're got to put chains on to get home or to go down the mountain. 
um, and it's muddy and snowy. So um, being responsible for your own power um, is great. You know, there was a blackout two years ago, like the whole Bitterroot Valley was dark and, you know, I was sitting up on the mountain. It was awesome to see there was no light pollution. This, I mean, the stars are always bright up there, but they were really bright that night. And, you know, we had our lights on. <laughs> um, we still had power, you know, my food was still refrigerated. Um, but, you know, I have to maintain the solar, I have to maintain the batteries, I have to um, constantly be monitoring our energy consumption so we don't fry our system or overload it and have our own blackout because we have a blackout, that's my fault. And my wife doesn't appreciate it when that happens. That's awesome, man. Uh, I'm gonna open up to the co-hosts, guys. What do you have uh, yeah. questions for? So first off, I just have to say, I'm really jealous of that mountain that you have back there. Cause every <laughs> picture I see you put up, I'm always just like, God, I wish I was there so I could see that firsthand. Yeah. Um, but uh, let me get my train of thought back. I'm sorry about that. Just give more work for Jacob later. <laughs> you want a moment? Yeah, I probably need a moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. I started uh, off and then I was just yeah, like, left my head. Yeah. This is okay. like the Odin ritual all over again, man. Um, <laughs> don't bring that back up on me. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and give you some time to thank Caleb. Once he, uh, I agree with Caleb, the, the mountains, the scenery and stuff around your place is very beautiful. I enjoyed watching your YouTube channel. Uh, you said you were with Freyer. So as someone who's never really connected to Freyer, uh, what advice do you have someone trying to connect to uh, one of the Bonnier or Freyer in particular? That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I have to say that honestly, I've never, it's always been something that uh, comes supernatural to me. Um, and in, in fact, at first, you know, I never actually reached out to him, just the process of um, homesteading and farming. And, you know, when I was in Kentucky, I was actually, I made a living farming um, as, you know, market farmer raising hogs and turkeys and vegetables and medicinal herbs. So it, it almost was like he approached me. And so I don't know that I can offer a lot as far as that. But I would say if you if you are a seeker looking to connect with one of the Vanier, um, the best thing you can do, you know, if it's fair, especially um, just try and grow something. You don't even need a big garden. You know, you can grow lettuce on your windowsill, something like that. Um, he is a god of the field and forest. So if you're not into cultivation, um, spending time in the woods is probably a good way to do it. Um, and honoring, honoring the forest, taking care of the forest, you know, go out to somewhere in nature and clean up a little bit and just sit and say, fair, I'm here if you would like to share any wisdom for me. And in my personal experience, um, I... I think I've heard Jacob talk about this before. Um, don't expect a lot the first time you reach out to a God that you haven't worked with before or a spirit, um, you know, a white um, land vateer, house vateer. But, uh, you know, let them know you're there. Make a simple offering. Um, go with what speaks to you. I would definitely say as much as I like making offerings of mead or cider, because that means I get to drink some. If I'm making an offering out in the woods um, to Frere or Scotty or anyone, I'd like to use something that, uh, you know, a day or two later, I can go back to where I was and clean up my offering 
And I try not to use alcohol when I do that because when I pour it onto the ground, um, just what I know about soil microbiology, alcohol kills the soil life. And one of the big things I am a proponent of is honoring the soil. We can touch on that later so I don't ramble too much, but uh, you know, I wanna honor the soil life. And if Frere is truly a God of the field and forest, the soil is part of that. So I don't wanna do anything disruptive. So oftentimes I will use milk and honey or something like that, that just uh, with today's modern science, we know benefits the soil microbiology. So even once I dispose of that offering, I'm still doing good as opposed to bad, but making gifts, before you ask ask for anything is gonna be, you know, if I don't know you and you say, hey, can I get a ride to work? I may or may not give you a ride to work, but if we've if I have a relationship with you in some form or another, I'm more likely to, oh yeah, I, I can give you a ride um, if that makes any sense. So um, yeah. That's actually a really good way. I've never thought about it that way, but that's a, actually a really good metaphor because, you know, if you, it, it, like a neighbor comes up to you and says, hey, welcome to the neighborhood here's like, you know, something I made for you and then like leaves. And then like you nurture that relationship. And then when they come up and they ask, Hey, you know, can you give me a ride to work? Then you are going to be more receptive. And I think that's actually a good way to look at the, the gods in general and the spirits that we work with is, you know, they'll probably be more cautious of people unless they are actively like seeking you out. They're, they're yeah. probably going to be quite more cautious. So actually I really like that analogy. So, you know, a way to just nurture a relationship. Um, you know, because that way they, they know you're not just in it for, for yourself, that you have something to offer them. Yeah, I know um, one of the big things that, you know, when we were kind of prepping for this, what I wanted to talk about is um, obviously you working your own land and being that, that sense of self-reliance and self-efficiency. That is something that I myself have been trying to get into as best as I can. Where I'm currently at in, in New Mexico, it's, you know, I live in a neighborhood, so it is difficult. But like you said, like you can have something as simple as like a windowsill garden like right now I have one of the um, arrow garden uh, hydroponic growers right now and it's doing pretty well so like I, I'm, I'm slowly getting into that and it's always been something that has uh, has been an interest of mine especially where I grew up in Minnesota most of my family came from farming etc and stuff like that um, but I, I feel like it's something that I I think a lot more people should start to move back towards. And in one of your videos, one of your earlier videos, um, I think you hit it like right on the head as far as what you said with doing something like that, being self-efficient and self-reliant is a good way of honoring the ancestors because you know they didn't, they didn't have the modern amenities of you know walking necessarily down the street to a grocery store as easily as we do. You know, there's grocery stores plotted all over the place, and you know, you have Amazon and all these other different sites that you can order food from. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's something that we should kind of move back to a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in full agreement with that. And, you know, the, the one thing I'd like to highlight about that is, you know, it can be really overwhelming if you're going to say, I'm going to grow everything that my family needs this year. Like, I don't recommend anyone say that. Um, it's a great goal. If you want to try, go for it. Um, but start small, you know, say, I want to grow enough vegetables that, you know, for the summer months and, you know, different climates are going to have different uh, opportunities. You know, if you're in Texas, July and August, you can't really grow anything. It's too hot. Um, 
Whereas I have a very limited growing window, um, June through August, basically. I get three months where it's warm enough to produce something. So, but, you know, make a goal of, I want to have enough vegetables to, you know, feed my family a salad once a week. Um, you know, obviously I've got a small land base so I can have uh, livestock. So I produce some of our meat um, and dairy as well. But, you know, don't, you know, just pick a small goal and start with that. But if we look at it, you know, up until about 150, 200 years ago, there was no supermarket. So even though we have had trades in agriculture allowed people to specialize, historically, all of our ancestors, um, even most of our, you know, Christian ancestors, for those of us that didn't grow up in heathen families, um, they were at least producing something from their house. Their home, their house was a homestead. And a lot of people think of homestead as, well, a homestead, you're growing all your own food. Well, a homestead, in my definition, um, the home brings value to your family. Whereas a modern person, you know, most of them, their home is really only shelter. They leave their home to go to work. Um, COVID changed a little bit of that. But, you know, really a home is a liability for a lot of people because if they default on the mortgage or they can't pay the rent, um, it's just something that's costing them money that they have to go elsewhere to get that money to provide. Whereas historically, you know, you may not have been in agriculture, but you were a blacksmith or something like that. You were still working from the home base and the home is what allowed you to have your livelihood so you could barter for um, food and food is really important. But yeah, as far as connecting to your ancestors, most of us don't live where our family came from. Jacob recently touched on that. Um, so ancestral veneration can be kind of tough, but if we try and emulate our ancestors um, and mimic the way that they may or may not have lived, that's a great way to connect with them because you all of a sudden you understand, you know, even if you're going to rely on the cushion of the supermarket down the street um, in case your crops fail or you can't produce that one salad a week, um, you fully understand their hardships and it really lets you understand, wow, if there's a crop failure, we would have starved. Like if this had happened and this was all I had, we would have starved or had to really hope that we were able to um, have a successful winter hunt or something like that. Um, we would have been at the mercy of our neighbors and hope that they had a good harvest and whatever destroyed our crops wasn't a massive storm that took out the entire villages that it was a, a localized event and that, you know, hopefully we can trade or barter with them to have enough to get through winter. I was just thinking too, like, you know, as far as like this, you know, religious aspect of it, you know, I'm sure you are much more thankful for a sunny day in the summer than I am, you know, and that's something that I feel like we've lost as a culture. And probably one of the reasons we moved away from the pagan religions is that we, we stopped being so thankful for the things because our, our lives became less involved with the natural cycles of the world around us. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, to me, a big proponent and something that I actually would like to see more of everyone I talk to claims that it's a part of their uh, pagan path, but at least what I see on forums and whatnot, you know, we have to remember that pagan traditions come from animist traditions. And when you're dependent on your natural environment to provide for you, whether or not you're hunting, hunter gatherer, or you're, you know, practicing agriculture, you're very much in tune with the living spirit of the rain, whether that's embodied by Freyr or Thor, or just a rain spirit. Um, and, you know, yeah, I love the sun, but 
where I live, we're a very dry climate. So as thankful as I am for the sun, if it's raining in July, that's when I'm dancing with excitement because unlike Kentucky where, uh, you know, a five gallon bucket will fill up in five minutes of rain, we get 12 inches of precipitation a year. And most of that comes in the form of snowfall. So rain to me, like when it rains, that's, that's when my happy face is on. <laughs> um, and that's when I give praise and thanks to Thor and Frere. Um, and it's debatable as to who's responsible for the rain. To me, if there's a thunder associated, it's, you know, Thor, obviously. If it's that nice gentle rain without the, the lightning, that's when I'm giving thanks to Frere. Baker, did you finally figure out what you're gonna say? You've had like 15 <laughs> minutes. I've just been waiting for everybody to get done with their questions. I just was being patient and nice. Um, but the question I was gonna ask earlier was, uh, we have a lot of people ask us, especially like in the discords, things like that, on like where to start or how to tell if you've got a, uh, when you've encountered a, a land vateer or a land white. And so I was just going to ask like uh, any information you've got on that or tips you've got for, you know, people that don't exactly have a uh, experience with them. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest advice I would have to offer as far as that would be, you have to trust your instincts with this. Um, and this is where I think having a mentor can be beneficial, but in my experience, um, contrary to what some pagans will tell you, it's very rare that uh, most spirits are malicious. Um, there might be quote unquote evil spirits, but you kind of know that they're evil. They just give you that feeling right away. So if you're sitting on your land or at a park out in the woods, and you feel something or hear something talk to you that doesn't say I am XYZ deity, more than likely it's a, a land vateer, um, a spirit of place. And you know, if you spend time getting to know them, you might learn, okay, this is actually a spirit of the entire forest, or it's a spirit that's located specifically to this tree or shrub or rock outcropping. And you know, if you look at the sagas, the the lore, so to speak, um, or even the practices of, of Iceland and the Lanvetir were very important. You know, if you were bringing your ship onto shore, you took the dragon head off so you didn't frighten the, the Vatir of the land. Um, a lot of the early curses were based on scaring someone's Lanvetir away so their crops wouldn't yield. Um, but it's very rare that, you know, a spirit's gonna reach out and if you nurture that relationship, they're not gonna let you know who or what they are or what, you know, what, they're associated with that rock outcropping that tree. I paused because I felt like I was rambling. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's uh, so I think it was Myths and Symbols in Pagan Europe by H.R. Ellis Davison was talking about um, Lanvetir and like the historical context and what we have recorded. Um, and I remember there was one story about like Goatbeard, like that was his name was literally Goatbeard. And it was because he was just this guy that like came in contact with a like a Lanvetir. And, you know, through his relationship with it, he became like the best goat herder in the area. And so like he became a legend for his goat herding because of this land spirit. And I'm like, that is just, that is a great like heathen story to me. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they, they can teach you things like that um, if you really take the time to listen to them. Um, I can say that my herdsmanship and I'm probably not a legendary goat handler, um, but my herdsmanship has improved by stopping to listen um, 
and understanding one, the animal and what scares them, what motivates them, but two, just uh, how they want to move across the landscape based off the spirits of the land. That might sound real esoteric. <laughs> Gentlemen, you got any more, uh, any more follow-up questions to those or I got more topics we can talk about, which you guys got anything? Um, yeah, I just kind of a, this is, I guess kind of more of a personal question for myself, but I mean, it could help other people. So looking into, I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit as far as like starting out with, um, you know, your own home setting and, and whatnot, because I am actually actively looking at um, a 10 acre plot relatively close to where I live right now. Um, as far as like starting out, like what are some good you know, tips besides like what you were saying earlier, like don't take on too much at one time, just out of, you know, my own personal curiosity and anybody who is potentially looking at doing something like that. All right. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to try and break this one up to make edits easier. But if you're starting out, um, a lot of people think you need the, the 10 acres or more to be self-sufficient. And well, there you can do a lot more with 10 acres. It's really amazing what you can do with a quarter acre. And so if you do go with 10 acres, don't think about making the whole thing productive right away. Um, and there's my pause. But uh, I do have a, a course that will be launching shortly that really jumps into how to design um, your your property, whether it's a quarter acre, 10 acres, 20 acres, and make it a productive homestead that also well, you know, the course focuses on that as well as it tying into your heathen practices. But the advice that I'm gonna give is um, a, lot of, a lot of the homesteading practices that I use are based in the practice of permaculture. And permaculture is a design science that it seeks to make regenerative, um, sustainable human environments that benefit the local ecosystem. And when you look at the, the principles of permaculture, the first thing, one of the, well, it's guided by ethics, um, and those are earth care, people care, and some people are going to say fair share. Technically, the third ethic is written as a, uh, what's the proper wording? Um, limits on human growth and development. Um, so, you know, making sure we don't overpopulate, et cetera. But as far as the principles that you put into place, um, they have the concept of zones. And this is different from the USDA growing zones, but zone one is areas that you habituate the most. And most of your food or crops are gonna be grown in your zone one garden first. And so this is an area that you want close to your home. Say you buy your 10 acres, don't put your garden 300 yards away from the house and make it a chore to go to. You want your zone one garden, which is gonna have most of your crops that need high maintenance, um, probably what you're gonna grow in your first year or two anyways, especially if you're trying to produce as much as you can for your kin and kith. Um, you want that easy to get to, you wanna make it, you know, you don't want it to be a chore to go, to go check things out. Um, and these can be as simple as like, if you have a path from your parking spot to your house, you have some, you know, annual crops growing right along the footpath. That way, as you're going to and from work, you can stop and look and, hey, the lettuce looks really good. Maybe I should harvest that head tonight for a salad. 
um, and it's right there in front of you. Um, so yeah, start, start small, small, start with something you can manage, take advantage of uh, infrastructure you already have um, and look for where you have sun and water available because that's what crops need. You can always improve the soil, make the soil better. I feel like I'm kind of rambling. I hope I answered your question. We, we bring um, you here to ramble. You're okay. Okay, yeah, no, but so the question was where to start. And so, yeah, start with A, what you need. You know, if you don't like to eat zucchini, don't grow zucchini. Um, you know, it's really fun to open a seed catalog and say, I want all these, but, you know, focus on what you're going to need. And if you can think about it and um, try and calculate how much you might need. If you have the goal of, say your family loves pickles. I'm not a big pickle fan, but my family absolutely loves them. So this summer, I'm going to grow a lot of pickling cucumbers um, and with the goal of putting up, you know, X cans that I figure, you know, my family, my wife, my daughter, and my mother-in-law um, are eating. And so that way I can grow all the pickles that they need and we don't have to go to the store to buy them. And, you know, you can see, I'm going to botch the quote, and I definitely don't know what stands number it is, but in the Havamal, we're taught that, you know, a man should know how much wood he needs for winter. Um, someone could probably look it up, but it basically says how much, you know, a man should know how much firewood you need to put up for winter and how many roof shingles you need. Obviously, most of us aren't making our own roof shake shingles. Um, we have metal roofs or asphalt shingles. We can easily go get those at Home Depot. But along those same lines, you know, you can say, all right, we eat X amount of this I'm gonna make it my goal to produce half of that in the first year or a quarter of that. And with the resources we have with the internet and whatnot, you can look at what the average yield for a single plant is and say, okay, if I wanna make that 25% of X, I need to grow six pumpkin plants if pumpkins are something you wanna grow. Yeah, that definitely, definitely helps. Oh, sorry, go ahead, sure. Well, I was just gonna say, it's interesting that you say that, you know, talking about the, making the garden close to your house because so, after you said that i got to thinking about my uncle because you know he kind of does his own little homestead stuff with uh chickens and pigs and uh growing a little bit garden and they're all right next to his house like i never it never dawned on me <laughs> until you said that yeah you know uh design design your garden or your homestead the, the way a lazy person would um because you, if it's hard to do if it's a chore to do you're probably not going to do it, especially if you have to go, you know, work eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours, you come home, you're tired. If the garden's, you know, on the other side of your 10 acres, and you have to put on your mud boots and walk out, trudge out there and carry things back. It's, you know, especially with this modern life, it's way too easy to walk in the door, hit that air conditioning and veg out and, you know, watch Netflix, um, get caught up on, uh, you know, whatever show it is that you're watching at the time or whatnot and just forget about it and then things go bad or your garden gets overrun with weeds um, and you get frustrated because then you you know when you go out there weekly instead of daily you go out and everything's buried under weeds or didn't grow at all because you weren't tending to it 
I will never forget. So my, uh, my uncle, I have it in the video, like way back, almost a year ago at this point, he inherited the property with like five or six acres. Um, and it was completely overgrown except for the house. And so he's had to repair the house, but the whole time the nature's just gotten more and more overgrown to the point now <laughs> where the, he has a pond on the property. And I went there to help him like, you know, do some work. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to go check out the pond. And I go up there and I'm looking down and I'm like, what's that under the water? And I just see all this movement under the water. I'm like, those are snakes. And the entire <laughs> pond was a snake pit. Like there was yeah. probably at least 20 to 30 snakes in this one little pond. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I would do if I lived here. <laughs> like, do you just throw dynamite into the water? Like, I don't know what to do with these snakes. <laughs> um, I mean, dynamite's always fun. It's hard to get your hands on. Um, there's, there's different approaches. Was this in Kentucky? Uh, Indiana. Indiana. So yeah, when we first moved to the region, we were in Southern Indiana, and then we moved to uh, Crestwood outside of Louisville. And what you were saying about nature reclaiming itself, I can, I've witnessed in that climate, that environment. Um, yeah, you know, we had 10 acres. And if you weren't, you know, if I wasn't grazing that 10 acres or mowing along, we'd lose, you know, five feet a year to the forest reclaiming the lawn. So I totally understand how you can end up with something that's just uh, hard to manage. Um, although there are elements that are nice about that, depending on the, the climate um, and what kind of snakes they are. Ultimately, if I had you know a quarter acre pond that was infested with snakes, I would be looking to, and I, I would have to do some research. I don't have a lot of experience with snakes or whatnot, but. I would be doing things that would try and attract things that eat snakes. And, you know, if we look at the tenants of permaculture, um, they will say that the problem is always the solution. So if we were to talk about a, a garden, if you have a quote unquote slug problem, you don't have a slug problem. You have a lack of ducks problem because ducks eat slugs. So, you know, don't, don't focus your energy on something that's going to just take energy from you and or other resources, whether it's time or money. Look at, okay, well, what can I do that is going to combat this problem that but actually benefits me? So if I was to go get a bunch of Peking ducks, um, they're pretty good layers. I personally like duck eggs. I prefer duck eggs over chicken eggs. And in my experience, ducks are easier to manage if you have water. Um, than chickens are. Um, they can be equally as messy, but they're not as destructive on the garden. So I, you know, if it was a slug problem, I would get ducks and I'd have to think about snakes. Um, snakes, I might try and do something to maybe increase the population of black snakes that eat other snakes and eat rodents. So it's, you know, there's still going to be snakes. In now you're, you're ending up with the, uh, the uh, like cat in the wall situation. Like you don't send a cat in to get a cat from the other side of the wall. Like, yeah. I feel like if I just put more <laughs> snakes in the pond, I'm just going to have more snakes. Well, it's, it's maybe <laughs> not, it's not getting more snakes. It's how to attract the snakes you want, which would control the snakes you don't want. Or maybe you look to um, clearing out the undergrowth around the pond a little bit more. So your local raptors that are going to be hanging out in your canopy trees can see the snakes. And we know that hawks, eagles, falcons, they like to eat snakes. So you're trying to make a habitat that is more conducive to attracting a predator that will eat the snakes. And there's, you know, the other um, thing is sometimes if you just watch these things, 
um, nature balances itself out. And one of my all time favorite gardening books, one that I highly recommend anyone who's going to get into homesteading reads is a book called Gaia's Garden. And there's a chapter in there where he talks about ecological succession. And I'm not gonna remember the, the book is written by Toby Hemingway, um, but he talks about some friends of his who had developed some wetlands on their property and they were growing uh, in the wetlands and they were, they were really thankful for the wetlands because the wetlands had all these cattails and every spring they were harvesting the young cattail shoots to put in stir fry and whatnot. Well, then one spring they went out and there wasn't a young cattail shoot at all and they were watching the wetlands and they described it as like a airport for muskrats. And the muskrats had found these wetlands that had been reclaimed, had moved in and the muskrats were just eating all the cattails. They could have gone out and bought the dynamite and blown up all the muskrats, which would have been fun to watch. Um, it's hard to buy dynamite. So maybe tannerite and shot some tannerite and blown all the muskrats up. But uh, Instead, they decided to just watch na nature take its course because nature doesn't like imbalanced systems. And the next year they went out and there was young cattail shoots again. And they were kind of perplexed. They said, okay, we didn't do anything about the muskrats. We didn't trap them. We didn't um, do anything like that. Well, succession had taken place and downriver, and they had never seen otters in the area, but there are otters in nearby waterways and otters will eat muskrats. Um, there was too much of a prey animal in the place. So a predator moved in. So, you know, with the snakes, if you were to watch it, eventually it's going to balance itself out. Maybe snapping turtles move in something like that, something that will eat the snakes. And, and I got a snapping turtle problem. All right, well, we got to move on from my uncle's pond. Snapper's <laughs> delicious. Hey, so is duck, though. I was going to bring that up. I was like, damn, yeah. I'd, I'd like to have a bunch of duck around, man. I love yeah. eating duck. Um, <laughs> Faker, you got something? Yeah, I've got one thing. It's just um, just going back to what you were talking about with Ian earlier about uh, like what you could do with even a quarter of an acre. I live in the city where I've actually got like, I think I've got, including the house sitting on like a bit over half an acre or so. Yeah. And I never thought that I could actually do something like that with it. So it's really interesting to hear. And I'm going to have to check into it. No, like I mean, and, and look into it. And, you know, when you are in the city, uh, depending on where you live, you might have issues with HOAs or things like that. But there are examples, of, you know, you can jump online. Like I said, we live in an amazing time where, you know, basically the world's knowledge is at our fingertips almost 24-7. But um, there are examples out there of people growing tons and tons of food, literally tons on a quarter acre or less. And, you know, fully self-sufficient homesteads. Um, if you're in the city, livestock becomes less of an issue. Um, and I don't know about you all personally, uh, meat, I need meat, um, but I grow my own meat, so, or I hunt. Um, but if you have an excess of vegetables or whatnot you can sell or trade and then you have money to buy your meat so you can grow a lot on a quarter acre um, and depending on zoning or whatnot you can have chickens or ducks or you know maybe even small livestock like sheep or goats and even though I'd rather see those animals out on acreage if you don't mind getting hay for them or if you're feeding them garden scraps and you have the fencing you know having a couple dairy goats um, 
it, it'll benefit your system because then you can collect the manure and put that on your garden beds and you've got fertilizer and you're you're kind of closing the loop and goats will eat a lot of the parts of the plants that you can't eat. So the possibilities that are out there are really, you can do a lot with a quarter acre. Um, and I would actually, if anyone was to approach me saying they wanted to you know, get into farming as a career, um, one, I would tell them don't anticipate getting rich quick ever, but uh, I would advise them to go for a smaller piece of land than a larger piece. Um, because it's, it's more manageable. And depending on where you live, you know, if you're somewhere like Kentucky, um, you, you've got a long growing season, you can get multiple successions of crops. Um, so you don't need that giant, you know, 20 acres to produce a whole lot of food. So that uh, brings us into a good question of things we wanted to talk about anyways, is uh, living a sustainable life in a downtown environment, or even just in a, you know, a suburban environment. So do you have any other further tips for people that wish to, to live this kind of lifestyle, but yet can't attain that land? Yeah, so I mean, if you're in an urban environment, um, I, I would definitely depend, you know, and everyone's going to have their own context. Um, contextually, you know, different people have different living situations. But first thing I would say is look into um, community gardens and or patio gardening if you have a deck um, because like I said you can grow a lot in a small space and yeah you might not be able to grow things like corn on your deck but if you have a duck that has decent sunlight and you utilize uh, some vertical um, stacking you know you can you know uh, there's look it up online but you know you can grow a lot in a two square foot space as long as you have an eight foot wall um, and you you know have tiered pots or whatnot on that, you know, and you can have cucumbers up high that are growing down. And as you go down the wall, you've got different lettuces, um, you know, other crops like that. Um, another thing to look into if you have the space is a hydroponic. I know one of you mentioned that you have a small hydroponic garden. Um, they're easily available kits that you can buy online. You can build your own. YouTube is awash with hydroponic and aquaponic information, but if you have a five by you know ten foot deck, you could set up a really um, kick ass. I don't know if I can say that, but you could set up a real sweet ass is acceptable. Okay, <laughs> you could set up a real kick ass aquaponics system, and you know maybe you're not even growing like tilapia as food. Maybe you just have goldfish in there, and you're feeding the goldfish, and that water's very nutrient rich, and it's watering all of your crops. Um, so just because you're in an urban environment doesn't mean that you can't take some of these small steps to at least uh, minimize your dependency on the system and feel that connection to your ancestors that I was talking about earlier. And through the practice of growing crops, um, help connect to some of the vanier gods, et cetera. One second, I just wanna uh, point out, is that you rubbing your hands together? Yeah, man, you got some farmer hands. Let's let's hear that like real good. Like like, well, you hear that? Like that is his hands. Like here's my hands. Like my hands just sound like little little baby shit. Like (laughs) (laughs) I got these soft hands. I need to get outside more. Um, These these are about as soft as mine get because since (laughs) it's winter, I'm wearing my work gloves a lot. You know, Um, so you know when it's ten degrees out, you know you kind of got to have something covering the skin. Jacob, you just need to go do more blue collar work, man. That like that is normal. <laughs> Who is gonna make all this wonderful content for us then? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe I just need to get like a really rough mouse so it's not like sandpaper on it. 
I don't know. But yeah, that's, I mean, you're just sitting there like, it's. Hey, when I did restaurant work, man, my hands were scarred and like little nicks from knives and burns from the oven. So they've just now gotten back to their soft, moist complexion. So I'll put some sandpaper on your walking stick when you go film your nature videos, you know. Um, So another thing we were wanting to talk about is you wanted to bring up, and we already mentioned kind of like this mentoring thing, and you wanted to talk about this, uh, this guild that you're kind of being a part of now. So if you want to explore on that a little bit more. Yeah, so the Hearthfire Guild of Fornsed, um, I'll, I'll get you the information, so if you want to link to it, you can, but it's a, a newly formed guild, and it's structured as a traditional guild would be. Um, so members have a membership due um, that uh, allows them to become a guild member, and that gives them access to any of the offerings from their journeymen or master teachers that are part of the guild. Um, and you can be a guild member if you're a guild member for a year and you want to continue in the guild um, and seek journeymanship or master status, um, then you become an apprentice. So, you know, there's a traditional guild structure, apprentices, journeymen, masters, and it's a collection of, at this point, I think there's about 20 of us. Um, a handful of masters, a handful of journeymen, some apprentices, and the, you know, everyone has their own specialty. Um, one of the, the masters, Stephen Gunn, he's been a practicing heathen for like 30 years. He's been walking a quote unquote spiritual path for um, 40 years. He's trained with uh, North American medicine men. They gave him a master title. Um, but he didn't feel authentic with it because it, it didn't, it wasn't his indigenous roots. So that's, you know, uh, you know, that was like 30 years ago that he experienced that. And at that point he started digging into, um, his European roots and he has a PhD in, uh, linguistics and, uh, he's a master of pre-Bronze Age history. Um, he's a trained scald and, you know, so he has like the wealth of information this gentleman alone has to offer is amazing. Um, one of our other masters, Ivy Mulligan, she's been uh, developing and practicing uh, said in the modern context for the past 20 years, looking at, you know, not only references in the lore, but uh, cultural similarities between other cultures and practices, uh, exploring what the Sami do, exploring what other um, mystics of other cultures do and then referencing the lore she's been trained by uh finnish and danish uh witches and whatnot um so if you're into the you know say they're the magical heathen aspects we've got that or we have a master blacksmith and i'd have to pull up his name real quick he doesn't attend most of our meetings but you know if you want to learn traditional blacksmithing we offer that within a heathen context. I offer a course, um, as I mentioned, that's you know the heathen homestead and how homesteading can help deepen and broaden your, your heathen path, help you find these more natural connections. One thing I've noticed a lot in different forums is you know people periodically talk about, I feel so disconnected lately. Um, but when you really embrace Fornstead or the ancient ways, you realize that, you know, it the gods are always there, um, but due to the crazy world that we live in and we get so busy and focused on work or the kids or whatever that we, it's just not an inherent part of our life. But 
um, we can intentionally make our heathen path just something that is part of our everyday life, if that makes sense. But um, something I've noticed is, you know, like, I feel like this is something the community needs. It's just the community doesn't trust it. And so at rebuilding this trust and the, the mentorship and having teachers, because I, I, I don't know if it's the ego part, people fear ego so much. And yeah. I mean, it is a problem in our community. I'd be the first to admit that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we need people that can teach others and are willing to teach others. So it's definitely something I want to see more of. And that's, that's why we decided to go with the guild format, because then you have, it's not just one person who's written a book or two or three or 20 saying, I'm a master, listen to me, come do my course. We have a, a group of people who have, who know each other and have experienced what the other person can do, are aware of their deeds and saying, yes, this person is a master at what they do. They are a, you know, it's a form of accreditation. Um, Part of our inspiration is, is if you were to look at our, our Celtic neighbors, um, the Druids. Um, you know, if you want to get into Druidry, you have the, the Obad training where, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a certified thing and you, you have a path to become a Druid. And there's, you know, mentors that will teach you how to become a Druid. And you start out at the Ovate level and then you move on to the Bard level. And as you progress, you're learning all these different things about that system's um, heritage, their sacred lore, and how to assimilate that into your modern life. So, because I know personally in my path, it was really hard for me to find a mentor that I trusted because is this someone who's just selling snake oil to make a buck, trying to, to make a living, um, just sell more books, whatever. Um, and yeah, the ego thing is tough. And yes, you can learn a lot of this on your own, um, but it's easy to one follow into the ego trap and to just become like a lore nerd and um i'm all for like i think everything we do has to go back to the quote-unquote lore but without it being a living tradition which a mentor can help guide you in um you you can get caught in these traps um or you know you let your gnosis go too far you interpret something maybe wrong um you know and i've seen some crazy stuff out there where you know and i, I don't want to invalidate anyone's upg but if you have a gnosis and you don't cross-reference it to the lore are you going to interpret that gnosis correct so to speak um and i don't want to bring up any of the examples because i don't want to like call anyone out but i've seen some people say some fairly crazy things about different gods or goddesses out there um, that don't fit in with the lore and I don't want to invalidate that person's experience but you know if well I think a, a good example for it is you know like if you can't base it in the roots you know it's not connected to the lore itself like you can have theories yeah. like uh yeah. you know like my North American paganism thing you know that in itself is my theory but I can't necessarily back that with any lore but to you know if I came out there and said no I'm a master in North American paganism and I'm going to start <laughs> people north american paganism it's like yeah like what right do i have like i made that up you know but you, you can base it in history though because when we look okay. at historical evidence um and i like i love that video if anyone's listening and they haven't watched this north american paganism video it's i like what i said i commented that it was a masterpiece i'd like way to go jacob but thank you um you know, if we look at the cultural practices across Scandinavia pre-Christian times, we know historically that different parts of the area based off their climate, their environment, 
and how they lived focused on different deities and had different practices. And one of the problems that I have with the lore and like, yeah, everything should be cross-referenced to the lore, but we also have to look at the archeology. span Most of the lore was written by Icelandic people living uh, during the Christian time. So it's like a snapshot of a very broad region that had very different biomes, lifestyles, et cetera. Um, so, you know, this, North, this concept of North American paganism, yeah, I'm all for it. And, you know, we are, you know, we can say that we are Norse-based or Norse-inspired, but, as, you know, as I said, you know, someone like me who lives up in the mountains and, like, literally, like, has Scotty beating the crap out of me all January and February is going to have different practices than someone who lives in Florida. It doesn't mean that we're not honoring the same gods, but we're going to have different, um, you know, when I make a bloat, um, I might ask, you know, Scotty, hey, calm down, like, let, let winter end early um, so I can get my crops in and have a good harvest. Whereas someone in Florida, like, do they care about Scotty or Ruler? Like there's no snow. Well, it'd be like, you know, someone like, uh, (laughs) you know, me, you know, living in a landlocked Kentucky calling to Ron or Agir, you know, it's, it's, you know, in this environment, you know, I'm sure it's one of those things where you don't tell someone like, no, you're, you're not wrong for doing that. Like you can practice this faith however you want, but the, you know, the entire idea of like, why would you even want to contact Agir or Ron in a landlocked, landlocked area? It just doesn't make sense. And I'm, I'm sure our, our ancestors who lived inland you know, Agar and Ron didn't factor into anything they did. You know, if if the biggest body of water they ever saw was like the river, uh, you know, why do they care about a sea, uh, you know, a sea god? Um, until they go raiding, of course, if they were raiders. Um, yeah. And so, but I mean, we can see archaeologically that different areas had different practices. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that the guild focuses on is that is the animist aspect of our practice. And, you know, part of animism is a living, breathing tradition. You know, we don't want to get stuck. We, we want to be as true to the cultural roots as possible, but we don't want to um, be stuck in the past. We want to figure out a way that we make it modern heathenry. And part of modern heathenry would be a North American paganism that you suggest, you know. Um, and it's, you know, based off historical evidence. It's based off the past. But, you know, we live in 2020 now, um, or 21. Yeah, 2021 now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, things are going to be slightly different. We have evolved. There are different factors. And yeah, you know, we should bring in, we should embrace more of our ancestral wisdom and embrace our kin a little bit more. Um, something that you see a lot of in modern America is, you know, kin isn't that important. To me, it, my, my family shapes everything I do, but, you know, so that's staying true, but, you know. Well, I think a, another good point to bring up is, you know, something, you know, we get really locked in because, you know, myself, Ian, Sherd, and Baker, we're all part of like the Wisdom Vote Discord. We're very like deep into the gatherings and things like that. But you, I mean, you're not really a part of that world, but we can still have this dialogue and still, you know, still honor you. Like, shoot, dude, if you called me tomorrow and you're like, dude, I need you here right now, I would find a way to get to Montana. Um, you know, and I think that's the, the power of this community is that we don't necessarily need to be in the same kindred or even in the same yeah. state, you know, the same, at the end of the day, you know, people that honor these gods and the land that we live on, those are people that should be honored and respected, no matter what path they end up taking, you know, so it's definitely something I want to see more of. 
Yeah. I mean, I, and that's one of the things that I have the utmost respect for the work that you all have done is you've built such a great community and I want to see that continue to grow um, and, you know, become more inclusive and people feel comfortable sharing their ideas, but, you know, also trying to stay true to our, you know, the roots of the practice. Has, has Chris bothered you yet? Has he tried to get you to come to a gathering? Because he's up no. in Mon Montana and uh, North Dakota. All right. Uh, no, no one's bothered me yet. Uh, oh, I would like sure. to make it to someone's gathering. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's having one in Chris. Idaho in like two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Whereabouts in Idaho? Uh, it's like northeast Idaho. It's pretty close to the border of Montana, from what I understand. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm right. I'm. I'm. 30 minutes from the border, depending on where he is. Well, so shit. I need I'll a, have to look into that. Yeah. I need, I'm going to have to connect Chris with him so he can, we can get this man to a gathering, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm texting Chris right now. What am I doing? Chris, man? get on it, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, I still want to make it to one of your gatherings, but, uh, you know, you like going Chris. To a gathering he's, a, he's a salty son of a bitch. Perfect. We'll get along <laughs> just fine. Um, but yeah, no, this, uh, Man, this is a crazy world we live in. I feel like, you know, it's just been such a turbulent time, but, you know, I've also never been more proud to be a part, you know, of the human community and the Norse pagan community, because I really do feel like we've, we've found an answer in this, and this, this, this crazy time we live in. Yeah, it's, uh, the world's crazy right now. It has been <laughs> for a while, as you know, but that, that also goes back to uh, why you should, you know, maybe try and learn some of these homesteading skills because as we saw you know at least at the start of the pandemic everyone was worried that they weren't going to be able to get uh food and uh, toilet paper um <laughs> but you know we still have the safety net of the grocery store so you know even if your crops fail you you have that backup but you know i hope at least a few people will realize hey you know maybe i should at least look into how i can produce something wherever i live whether it's a city apartment, a suburban yacht lot, um, how you can factor that in and, you know, have a little bit of security in case things get really crazy. Oh, we're coming to your land. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen those mountains. I know you got goats. We're coming. Right? Like, oh, that I'm was the first the thing. I, dude, that's the first thing I've seen whenever I was, you, you shared this uh, YouTube and I was watching it last night. And there's just a glorious mountain range behind you the entire time you're filming. I was just like, Yes. Why don't you film? Are you filming more on those mountains? You better be. I'm. I'm trying to do more outside shoots. Uh, I'm still kind of limited. I like. I hate using it as an excuse, but there is, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, a lot of my early videos, I got a lot of uh, comments about how the audio sucked, and to a certain extent, that comes down to gear. And I just haven't figured out the right mic for either of the cameras I have. That because they're beautiful mountains, they're also pretty windy at times um so filtering out that wind and still being intelligible uh is one of my biggest challenges and there's also the fact that with a wife a daughter and a homestead a lot of the times when I actually have time to shoot it's midnight or you know maybe 10 p.m so uh get out there during a full moon like, yeah blasting out you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it, you know I'm doing what I can and I want to do more outside shots in the mountains, um, in the forests, um, along some of our rivers. So 
I think this is a pretty good transition because we are starting to get to the end of this episode. And I want to make sure we gave you plenty of time to kind of, you know, plug where you, uh, people can find you, talk about your YouTube a little more and talk about these upcoming videos and kind of what you want to, what you want to start working on here as we close out yeah. this episode. So, I mean, the videos, uh, you can find them at Iowa's initiations on YouTube. Um, and they are, are focused primarily on, you know, uh, I believe my tag is, I don't believe. The tag is connect with your ancestors or honor the land. Honor the land, connect with your ancestors, witness the gods, all will save in Midgard. Um, a lot of the homesteading that I, the style that I homestead is about, you know, uh, creating regenerative systems that don't only just benefit you and your kin, growing food, fiber, fuel, and medicine, but they're also beneficial to the local ecosystem. You create habitat for the birds, the bees, all of that. Um, no matter where you live, I mean, you can still do this in uh, the suburbs or even on an apartment. So in an apartment. So that's the Iwas Initiations channel. You can also find me on Instagram. That would be Soil Shaman, same as YouTube, or not YouTube. Uh, Instagram and Facebook are Soil Shaman, and there's the Guild of Foreign Said and. Um, what I teach for the guild is kind of proprietary to the guild. So that information you have to be a guild member for, but a lot of the ideas you can find um, maybe not in as in depth as you would through the guild, but you'll find those through my other outlets. All right, excellent. Well, uh, co-host, I wanna give you one more second. Uh, is there any last minute questions you guys have to ask him before I close out the episode? Uh, yeah, I, I, one of my I wanted to comment you on your uh, your mirror video. That one was really detailed and how you like broke down uh, everything was really good. Uh, the one that I haven't got to yet that I'd like you to kind of touch on for our audience and everything is the nine noble virtues. I haven't watched that video yet, so if you want to kind of give a small yeah. gist of the information. Okay, so that one was one of my earliest videos. Um, so I'm going to do my best to recall. I don't have the notes in front of me. And I know the, the nine noble virtues are a very controversial subject in modern uh, heathenry, Asatru, um, just based off of who they were written by. Um, that said, I don't think that, you know, just because something was written by someone who's apparently not the best person in the world undermines the value in what they wrote. And so we do know that the nine noble virtues are based off of wisdom found in the Havamal. Um, so I basically talked about how homesteading helps cultivate all nine of the nine noble virtues. So, you know, obviously you can see how self-reliance fits in, um, industriousness, you know, you have to have an industrious nature to say that you're going to do this and have the problem solving capacities to, okay, um, if I've added this water feature that now creates a creek that's between my driveway and the garden, how can I fabricate a bridge or who do I know that can fabricate a bridge so I have this access, but I still have this water feature that's benefiting um, the local ecosystem and the garden system as well. Um, you put me on the spot, I'm not even gonna remember all nine noble virtues off the top of my head. <laughs> um, what does, you have to, we'll just you cut have, and be like, and he covered all nine noble virtues. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I'm not, I'm not going to cover all nine because then no one's going to go watch the video. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, you have to have a level of courage to say that I am going to 
take responsibility for the health and nutritional needs of my family. Um, that's not something that someone who is, you know, afraid of life is going to do. It's, it can be a big undertaking. Even if you say, I'm only going to, you know, I'm going to set myself up for success and I'm going to provide a, a quarter of our nutritional needs or our medicinal needs and grow a quarter of the crops that we need to um, sustain ourselves. That's not something that someone who's, who's not courageous is, is not courageous is going to do. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just kind of wanted a brief, brief <laughs> no, overview. It's, it's all good. So yeah, yeah. I, I basically, I go over each one of the, I go over each one of the virtues in turn and talk about how a, you know, an ecological garden, um, one that benefits not only your kin and kith, but you and your, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me be really redundant talk about how an ecological garden enhances and strengthens all nine of the noble virtues. So I, uh, I will never forget the first time. I don't know if, how I found you. I think it's whack. I, I was only at like 800 subscribers. I think I, when I found you or maybe a thousand. And I remember I was like, oh, I'm going to search up and see what videos pop up if I type in Ossetru. So I typed in Ossetru and right away was this video titled Ossetru will fail you with like you doing like the finger to the screen. I'm like, yeah. who is this? Yeah, Dude, saying such um, aggressive things. And I click on the video, I'm like, oh no, I agree with you, dog. <laughs> so that that video, uh, I'm not gonna lie, I do have a, a follow-up of that coming up. And that video, I have a love-hate relationship with. Um, I think I made some really valid points in it, but uh, you know, I don't know if you got into it, but when I started YouTubing it, I started watching all these YouTube videos about how to YouTube and how to, you know, boost your views and whatnot and one of the um people i watched had a you know he was talking about utilizing ethical quick ethical clickbait to boost views and the Austin true will fail you video is my version of ethical clickbait and it's still like it's my channel's number one video i still get comments on it almost every other day um it still drives crazy views well, yeah, I mean, literally, like, I think I just did this the other day. Um, if you type in, like, Ossetrue, the first four videos are mine, uh, Crawford's, Eris, and then yours are the yeah. four that pop up right away, which and, I'm honored, you know, to be all of that top four. <laughs> yeah, and I, like, I'm flabbergasted that I'm, I'm up there as well. Um, it, but, you know, as far as the content I've created, I think it might actually be one of the worst videos I've ever made. And so so is mine that pops up. What do you do? Austin <laughs> it, mine was the fourth video I ever made. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this one's my fourth video on that channel. Um, so and it like, yeah, I want to promote heathenry and help people be the best heathens they can be, but it doesn't like fit in with the overall theme of the channel. It doesn't have a lot to do, you know, with honoring land, connecting with your ancestors, witnessing the gods, or saving Midgard. Um, but if you haven't watched it, it does bring up some really good points of view. Uh, the follow-up is actually going to be even better, I think. Um, so that one is the one that's actually going to be coming out this Friday, which will actually be the Friday before this uh, podcast comes out. So 
uh, head over to Iowa's initiations and check it out. <laughs> all right. Amen. Well, no, I, we can talk all day and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit after we, uh, we end this podcast, but we do need to end it. Uh, but Matthew, thank you so much for being on this show. I've been looking forward to you being on here for quite some time now. Um, so once again, if you uh, get a moment, please give him a follow on Instagram at soil at soil underscore shaman, as I just found out. Um, and um, AWAS Initiations on YouTube. His new video is coming out soon. I can't wait for them myself. But um, if you are interested in being on the Folk Podcast, please email us at thefolkpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have questions you would like us to answer, please email us at thefolkpodcast at gmail.com. But it is time to end this video. And as always, we're going to see what trickery is up our sleeves as we try to skull at the very end. I don't know what drink Caleb has, but it does. Is that like Buchu? What is this? <laughs> 10 cup rye. All right. Well, folk, until the hall. Skull. 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 skull.